a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Welcome to the Menopause and Cancer Podcast, where we speak with cancer patients, survivors, and incredible experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and ideas to improve our health. My name is Danny Binnington, and on today's show, I want to talk to you what is the golden standard of cancer care, cancer treatment, post-survivorship care, especially when you've been put into menopause after cancer. I'll be talking to the amazing Dr. Shelley Latte, who is a member of the Integrative Medicine Services at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City, and these guys get it right. They research and apply evidence-based complementary therapies to support cancer patients and survivors through all of their post-cancer treatment and during cancer treatment and into the menopause. She's also the director of the Mind Body Medicine Department and Shelley is amazing. We'll be talking about hypnotherapy, hypnosis, mindfulness, CBT, CBTI for the management of hot flushes, fatigue, pain, and insomnia. There is so much to learn from this episode. If anyone's ever told you supplements don't work, herbal medication doesn't work, and CBT, don't trust the people that claim CBT works. If my symptoms aren't in my head, then we hear you, but you've got to hear this episode because we're going to back everything up with facts. Yes, these symptoms are not in your head. I know that myself, but there is still a lot you can do without hormonal or prescription medication. And this is a great episode if you want to add on to your conventional cancer treatment. We'll talk a little bit more about that. All the way at the end of the show, I'm going to go into a little story time for you of how hypnosis has helped me in the past. And I'm going to tell you exactly what has happened. So stay till the end. But for now, I just need to get Shelley onto the show because I can't wait to quiz her of how we can manage our symptom baggage, symptom suitcase, symptom trolley, and how we can lighten that load. Shelley, we've just started to talk about all of your exciting work. And I said, is it the best way to call it complementary therapies, everything that you do? And you just talked to me about terminology and how important it is. And I want to talk about that. But can you tell me, are all of the methods methods that we're going to discuss today, do they get your patients the benefit that they seek when they manage menopause and cancer survivorship? Do they work? So that's a good question. I think we're talking about a really wide range of different modalities and lines of treatment. And so um, do they work? They work just like any other medications. They work for a proportion of patients better than others. I think the the thing about integrative and complementary medicine is that we're widening our toolbox. So when something doesn't work or doesn't align with somebody's health philosophy, we have additional tools to use. So that's how I would put it. Mm. And I like what you've just said, that they work as well and not as good as any other medication because it's the same yeah. with medication, right? Exactly. It doesn't always work for everyone and we know it doesn't. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think you're touching on, um, I, I think what I hear a lot from my allopathic, from my conventional colleagues is that 
they're brushing off all of complementary and integrative, integrative modalities as uh, this is placebo. And listen, placebo is a great, is a great tool. I think we should use more of that. Um, but by now we have a lot of different integrative modalities that have been tested against placebo and where we still see a signal, um, meaning we have to assume that they have efficacy beyond the placebo effect. Um, that being said, I'll take the placebo effect any day. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about where you work and what strategies you apply, because I think it's just amazing that this is all part of this cancer survivorship and, and cancer treatment center. Yeah. So I'm an internist and an integrative medicine specialist, and I have been working for eight years now at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. It's a major cancer center in the U.S. in New York City. And um, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, we have had for now over 20 years an integrative medicine service. And uh, this integrative medicine service is really there to add another layer of care to the conventional treatment, to the gold standard treatment for patients. And uh, we have a large acupuncture group. Uh, we have a massage therapy group. Uh, we have a mind-body therapy group. We have a lot of online content for patients. Um, we have a group that is researching the use of herbals and supplements in the context of cancer treatment and survivorship. And then we talk to patients a lot about preventive lifestyle uh, measures, um, including nutrition and, and exercise and stress management and sleep. So that is all under the umbrella of the integrative medicine service and this what mm. uh, drives patients to see us. Mm. And I think that's what what's so amazing because all of the modalities, and we'll talk about a few more and, and the ones you are very passionate about, is exactly what we hear all of the people listening to our podcast. They're seeking for those because often they're told, told you, you can't have a certain treatment or that's your lot and you'll be in menopause and there isn't much we can do. And so people yeah. are often very much left on their own to then yeah. seek those modalities. They have to go and try and find perhaps acupuncture, which might be expensive if you have to pay for it yourself, or yeah. it's actually time consuming to take yourself yes. to these appointments. And if at the end of the day, you don't actually believe it's really going to work for you because no one's explained the actual yeah. benefits yeah. of the studies, then you're much less likely to go and do it and show up yeah. for it. Yes. Yeah, we see that in research that when we measure expectancy, so how much patients anticipate to get benefit out of a modality, that matters. That matters for the outcome. And so going into whatever you're going to invest your time or your money in, it should be really well informed. What do the guidelines say? What does the research say? How much experience and expertise does your provider have? And I, I realize that's not easy to, to get answers to sometimes, but it matters. It matters for how much you're going to get out of that time investment. Now, time for a quick message to thank our partner for this episode, M-Powder. How many of you can relate to how confusing it is when you want to support yourself with perhaps herbal supplements, but you have no idea where to start, what supplement can help with what symptom, and when you have to worry about possible contraindications? Because let's face it, once you've had a cancer diagnosis, nothing is quite so straightforward anymore, is it? I know from myself that it was 
And I was really confused for a long time as to what could help. But I was very lucky that I started to work with a medical herbalist. But I also know not everyone has access to one of those. And so the FAB team from Empowder came onto an episode with me a couple of weeks back. And they explained the benefits of some of the herbal supplements, but also possible contraindications and who is perhaps affected and when there are contraindications to look out for. So go check out that episode. This is a great starting point for you to do your research and then also go out and check out their whole food supplements as they can be so helpful for some people. I, for example, really like the gut instinct product. I eat a lot of probiotics. I love sauerkraut. I love kimchi. I love kefir and I have done for many, many years. I also eat lots of beans and lentils. And so bloating every now and then is actually an issue for me. And the gut instinct really helps me with that. But I know from many women in our community who really like the mood food supplement, for example, although um, the packet says it can help with brain fog and sleep. Many of the women in our community say it really also helps with um, joint ache, for example. There are contraindications with one of the ingredients if you're on tamoxifen, for example. So go back to the episode, check out the show notes, do your research because we've added loads of great research articles as well. And we're quoting all of the data there is. Um, I really, really hope this is super helpful for you. We want it to be practical. We want it to be action packed and it really want to empower you that there are solutions out there for you that you can try. So go to mpowder.store, check out all of the fantastic products and go and listen to the episode for your research. Yeah, because if I really believe the way I eat is going to make a difference to how I'm feeling or by reducing and removing some trigger foods like, I don't know, um, ginger from my smoothies, it's going to really help with my hot flushes. I'm really yeah. not going to put that ginger in. But if I just think it might do, I'm not yeah. going to worry so much. So it's very much I think that belief system is so important. Yeah, yeah. And I think it can cut both ways. I think that, yes, I think that if we're feeling um, Powered and what we can pursue, it makes us feel like we're participating in our care rather than having to surrender to the slew of medications. We can actively participate in our care, which is one of the goals of integrative medicine. That's extremely empowering. That can be very beneficial for patients, um, for all of us. Um, but there's another side to it and that I, I, I call that sometimes self-care burden. And I see that specifically in younger women after cancer treatment, they are hyper motivated to clean up their entire lifestyle. And so before you know it, you see them, you know, making juicing for half an hour in the morning and then sitting in meditation for an hour and then going to acupuncture and then working out uh, and then making all their meals. And so they acquire a second job and that is not always empowering. That can be another layer of stress, right? And so we have to titrate what is right for you in this moment, right? But what is the biggest bang for our buck, for our time investment, uh, energy investment, and remove the guilt that can sometimes come with, oh my gosh, I deviated from my, um, from my diet, right? Mm. I, did, I, did I cause myself to maybe have a higher recurrence risk now, right? If every decision is um, loaded like that, that's immensely stressful. That's what I call it self-care burden. And I, I, 
I think it's really helpful for, for all of us to, to reflect on that because I think the wellness industry has become another driver of, um, you know, of our itinerary and our priorities. And we really have to titrate and put, you know, part of self-care is also really caring about ourselves and really putting a hand on our heart and asking what, what is the most, what would serve me the most today? Mm. And I think I carried a lot of that self-care burden with me for many years. Um, at one point, my family, my husband sent me on a cookery course. It was a cookery uh, course at a very uh, famous cookery school, and it was a nutrition in practice course. And I think they thought that the course is going to talk a bit of sense into me, which it did, a little bit more balance. Because if you had offered me a tonic water all those years ago, I would have been quite aghast thinking, oh no, that contains sugar. I wasn't drinking alcohol. So obviously people want to offer you something, um, but I wasn't having any of it because of the worry of what a sugary drink might do to me. But what I didn't realize, it very much alienated me a little bit from society as well. You know, I was always the guest at dinner parties who was vegan, who then didn't touch a sugary drink. And so you put yourself into that situation where I already felt on the outside. I was a young mum on the school run with three young kids. I already felt different. And without knowing, I, I put myself into many other boxes that weren't always helpful. And so I think that word self-care burden really resonates with me. And I'd like to, every listener at home right now, I'd like to ask them, do you carry some of that yeah. with you? And maybe yeah. at different times we carry different self-care burdens, but it's a word I've never heard before until you mentioned it. And gosh, it resonates massively. Um, I wonder how people feel at home and what self-care burden um, yeah. they carry with them. Yeah. Thank and you for I explaining that. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think there's a, a recipe for for how much is right for each person. I think everyone has to sort of titrate and curate that self-care for themselves. It might change from day to day, from face to face. Um, but being sensitive towards that, how is that serving me? How is that yeah. other uh, aspect of self-care serving me? Mm -hmm. And... Um, yeah and yeah. and really really getting also good advice right i i think that yeah. as, especially around nutrition i'm seeing a lot of pressure a lot of guilt um yeah. really getting good guidance is very important yeah so you see a lot of your patients coming in with a bit of self-care burden what yeah. else do some of your female cancer survivors present with especially when we talk about the menopause do many of them do all of them even know menopause is a thing for them or do some come in with symptoms and they actually haven't got a clue? They just think it's cancer treatment related. What do you yes. see in clinic? Yes, exactly. You nailed it. I think that it's very difficult to discern because many of the symptoms can be subtle, right? Many of yeah. the symptoms can be very subtle and it's very difficult to discern where does some of the deconditioning and the um, psychosocial stressors of the treatment, the trauma of the treatment, and, and where does uh, sort of that uh, menopause or perimenopausal changes, where do these start, right? It's all becoming sort of a, um, like a suitcase of symptoms that we sort of have to slowly unpack and see how we can, um, how can we address each piece. Um, 
But yeah, so patients come in with, of course, um, you know, the, I call them sometimes the eight S's, the sleep, uh, uh, the, 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 the sex scale, right? Weight gain, um, the seething or, or sadness, I sometimes call it, um, a, the, the uh, scatteredness, right? So mental, men, mental changes, um, right? So they come, in with this range of different menopausal symptoms that are quite typical that we hear a lot, weight changes, mood changes, um, stiffness, right? Another S, uh, uh, musculoskeletal pain. Um, uh, sweats. And Another sweats. S. Exactly, sweats, <laughs> I left that out, yep. So yeah, exactly. And so um, they come in with these symptoms um, and um, at times realize it might be hormonal, at times not so much. I think uh, one of the things we're not doing as well yet is preparing patients for what that might look like um, without increasing sort of anticipatory anxiety, because we also know that, you know, uh, there are there are proportion of patients that don't have these symptoms necessarily. Yeah. Um, but really preparing this is this is what it might look like. And this is what we can do for it. So I think one of the biggest symptoms i'll say is um being not really prepared and not not knowing treatment options and in which direction to go and you know yeah. i think that that is one of the biggest things i love your terminology i speak to so many people but i'm learning so many words that i think i want to adapt them forever like the suitcase of symptoms i love that shelley because I would have said, you know, the module of menopause symptoms, but a suitcase of symptoms I like because a suitcase you can unpack and unpack yeah. differently and you can unpack it and you can shed a bit of weight, leave some behind, and then you put other things in. Mm -hmm. And I really like that because people don't always know what symptoms is what. Is it brain fog mm -hmm. because you've had chemotherapy? We know patients have brain fog who haven't had chemotherapy or is it yeah. chemo brain or brain fog related yeah. because of hormones? So you don't always know. And even the best doctor in the world won't always know what's mm. what, right? So I, I think, um, and does it matter, Shelley? Does it matter? Or yeah. I mean, yeah. you present with this symptom, it's a bother. Isn't that enough yes. to say, let's get, maybe try and get on top of it maybe? Or Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, when I sit in front of a patient, it's not an academic exercise. It's how can we get you better, right? It's not let, let's find out, let's do all the tests. Sometimes we have to do tests in order to narrow it down, in order to rule out, um, you know, a pathophysiology that has to be addressed with other medications. But other than that, um, it's really, what are some of the things that might not be related to the cause? For example, let's take insomnia, right? Um, yeah. There, for insomnia, there are things that, um, that put you at higher risk for insomnia, like female gender puts you at higher risk for insomnia. There are things that might precipitate insomnia that we can't change, but there are also things that perpetuate the symptom. Those we can change, right? Those uh, we can have behavioral modifiers. We can have a range of treatments um, that sort of break that cycle of perpetuating uh, conditions. And, um, and and so I think for you know, cognitive changes, it's the same. We might not be able to change the hormonal changes and fluctuations, um, the exposure to stress and chemotherapy. We can't change it, but there are a range of different things that do affect your cognition. Those we can change. Um, and yeah. starting there uh, is, is really important. 
And that's such a beautiful point you've just made, because I think a lot of people think as long as I'm, I'm on this treatment, nothing would change. So people often think, well, I'm, for example, I'm on tamoxifen, I've put on loads of weight. As long as I'm on this drug, I won't be able to shift my weight. Or I have surgically onset menopause, I'm not sleeping. I might not be able to have hormone replacement therapy. That's it. I won't be sleeping again. Mm -hmm. But what you've just said is, yes, you can't change certain things, but you can still improve your experience of the yeah. symptoms. So you can change the suitcase. So the, the packing order changes yeah. a little bit. Absolutely. You can get a suitcase with some wheels so you can carry it quite easily, <laughs> right? You, um, there, there are a lot of different things that can be done. None, not all of them switch off the symptom, but many of them can significantly improve the burden. Yeah, and that is exactly what I want you to talk us through. So imagine this patient coming into you um, and you talk through a variety of symptoms, how and what strategies can help. And maybe you can give us a few ideas of what symptoms they might help with. So talk us through your toolkit so that yeah. that suitcase becomes a really nice little wheelie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think that the first thing I do is really um, do a, a very comprehensive symptom assessment. So I really get the full picture of not only their symptoms, but also their lifestyle. So what does that actually look like? What what are their staple meals? What uh, what is, is their exercise uh, routine? So I, I really get a sense of their health behaviors um, so that we can also attach to some of these aspects and, and change them if we need to. The next thing I want to do is look through the laboratory and their conventional medical workup and see, you know, if there's fatigue, is are there, um, you know, changes in the thyroid function? Is uh, maybe the hemoglobin low? Is there anemia, right? Is there um, maybe nutritional deficiency? Efficiencies. Rarely, these can also contribute to fatigue. So we're wanting to rule out any, any things that we can treat with medications. And then beyond that, we want to see how do we get the symptoms better. For me, very foundational is sleep, right? If we don't sleep, we okay. have very little capacity to change our diet or be active or um, we have at much higher risk of, uh, of having depression and anxiety, right? It exacerbates everything that's not going well. If you don't sleep, it'll make everything worse. So I think that's very, very foundational. Sleep and stress management, that's where I want to start, especially because my patients are often really motivated to lose a lot of weight and increase you know, their physical activity. And I want to say, uh, let's slow down and let's first, you know, um, first address the stress, make first an environment that is nourishing for you, a routine that is sustainable uh, and peaceful and, and really assists you in, in recovery and rehabilitation. And that mm -hmm. starts with sleep and stress management. So for me, that's very mm -hmm. foundational. Insomnia, the first line treatment is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. It's not a medication or a supplement or a relaxation practice. It's cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is the first line treatment. And so that's what we often do in order to get people to sleep better, in addition to maybe using natural products, right? Sometimes um, uh, we want to come off prescription sleeping aids that have been used during treatment. So we're working on that, slowly incorporating mm -hmm. some um, uh, relaxation and stress management practices. There's a lot of evidence supporting mindfulness. Um, uh, for hot flashes specifically, we have lots of evidence that hypnotherapy, learning self-hypnosis can be very effective, right? So we're starting with that. And then we go, you know, 
into the more um, uh, maybe uh, you know, we're, we're getting a little bit more homework, like um, dietary mm. changes or mm. you know, other things. Mm. Mm. Talk to me a bit more about cognitive behavior therapy, especially for yeah. insomnia, and then compare it to normal cognitive behavior yeah. therapy. We had yeah. a little bit of not really controversy in the UK, but it was um, suggested it could be, become part of um, the management for menopause as part of the guidance and yeah. many people sort of complain saying it's a step backwards and um, we should help women with hormonal options and yeah. cognitive behavior therapy isn't going to get rid of your hot flushes yeah. it won't get rid of our hot flushes but explain right. it to us and how can it help with sleep and how much effort do we have to make for it to work like <laughs> how much patient participation yeah. yeah it's not like slapping a patch on your bottom is it quite <laughs> no it's not it's not nah. um <laughs> So, um, so first of all, CBT, um, CBT, when, when people hear CBT, they think about working with a psychologist on things like anxiety and depression. Um, but in reality, CBT, cognitive reappraisal, cognitive reframing are skills that we can throw on almost anything that gives us stress. And it can be a tool that helps us widen our perspective and reinterpret situations we're exposed to. And so uh, with that, it's a very empowering tool. It's not, yes, we have lots of evidence across chronic pain, um, hot flashes, insomnia, that it can help with symptoms. It's not the only tool, but it's a really empowering <clears throat> and actually fun tool to learn. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so uh, I think for insomnia, CBTI or cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is a little bit different in that it's very much focused on your circadian regulation, your sleep behavior, sleep beliefs. It's a little bit different than other forms of CBT maybe. But, you know, I'm, I'm a um, co-principal investigator looking at a study that uses mi mindfulness approach that also uses cognitive reappraisal for chronic pain. Lots of evidence to support that approach. Mm. And here we also have to fight against that notion that my pain is not, I'm not inventing my pain. Why am I getting CBT to address my pain? This is real. This is not just in my mind. And so I think the answer to that is that every symptom we have is, um, in, is, is exposed to interpretation. Right. A good example is, for example, you know, those of us who had children, we know what it feels like to have a child to be exposed to that extreme pain. It feels different because we interpret it different. We might be able to tolerate it differently sometimes. Right. And so there is a level of interpretation that can help us cope with a challenge in a different way. And that's what we're learning with cognitive reappraisal. Doesn't mean it's the only treatment you'll get but it's a, a, a very good tool to learn. And then in terms mm -hmm. of how much, how much effort does it take, it really depends. It depends. I think pain, for example, you need to practice quite a bit in order to, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, you know, I always, uh, I heard somebody say that, uh, you know, we live with our cognitions for 40 years, 40 plus years. Um, we have practiced them, they surface, you know, without us even knowing these are mental knee-jerk reactions that we're looking at. And so to retrain them, it takes effort, right? We have to, we have to work on that. We have to practice it, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Mm. And I think this is where if you are guided as a patient, say by someone like you and someone who helps you to put together a plan, an integrative plan, then you know 
you don't have to sort of dabble. I think for years I have dabbled in trying to put together a plan myself. Of course, I'm not a trained uh, expert in anything. I've just tried to do. And a lot of the times I tried to do loads of different things at the same time. And it was exhausting. It was really quite hard work, like very much like what you explained earlier. Mm -hmm. But if you help someone with a plan and you think, actually, I know you want to get back to better fitness. I know you want to have, you have all of these plans and ambitions, but let's address your sleep. Because if we start here, everything else will just be a little bit easier for you. Yeah. It makes so much sense. And if we're trying to do all of this on our own as patients, because integrative care is not very much part of any of our, for example, in, in England, the National Health Services, there are some uh, clinics that have it that... um do it but in general it's not it's very much you're on your own as a patient and so it's hard to know where to start so it's very interesting for you to start with sleep yeah yeah sleep and stress management i think it's you, know, you can't get around to to impose on yourself other changes of your routine and energy expenditure if that is not in some shape or form supported and nourished and uh, in a sustainable yeah. way yeah. Yeah. And thank you for explaining CBT because yes, like you say, so many people say that sort of instills the idea that it's all in our head yeah. where it's, it's so, so good to sort of get clarification on that and really what happens and how it can help. And sometimes the severity of the hot flush, for example, isn't going to reduce, is it? But it's how you perceive the hot flush or what you do in a certain situation. Say I'm yeah. talking here to you and I'm worried about a hot flush. Mm -hmm. That's really quite debilitating because I might think, oh, my gosh, you might judge me for it. Um, mm -hmm. Here I am talking about the menopause and then I'm going <laughs> to break out into a hot flush, for example. Um, yeah. And so it's really just rethinking where we're at is just so helpful. Hey, thank you for listening so far. This podcast has an amazing Facebook community full of inspiring women supporting each other and sharing their stories. Please come and be part of it. We'd love to have you in the group. Click the link in the show notes and come in now. You know, we all, many of us have the experience that when we're stressed, when we're under pressure, some of these symptoms get worse, right? Especially hot flashes in my experience. I'm stressed, I'm running around, you know, I might, I might have more severe symptoms. Um, and many of my patients do to say that, yeah, when I'm late, late for work, I'm going to have a hot flash. If I'm in the meeting, I have to speak, I'm going to have a hot flash. So having ways to reframe those situations for yourself and maybe a little bit turn down some of the pressure that lies on you um, can, be, can be therapeutic to some degree. Doesn't mean the hot flash is gone, never, never to occur, but it might pass easier. Uh, you might not suffer from it so much, right? You might not exacerbate it when it happens. Yeah. Yeah. So just reducing the symptom load, isn't it? Sometimes yeah. it's not re removing it completely. It's just yeah. easing off. That can be actually really helpful for yeah. so many, mm -hmm. so many people. You touched on hypnosis. Can you talk a little bit more yeah. about that, please? Yeah, so um, hypnosis or clinical hypnotherapy, there are many different terms that uh, we use. It's um, another tool that has uh, quite a bit of evidence of specifically reducing hot flashes. When we're looking at the Menopause Society guidelines for non-hormonal mm -hmm. treatment for hot flashes, this is one of the modalities that is um, uh, recommended with level one evidence, meaning that there are several randomized controlled trials that highlight its for efficacy. 
And so self-hypnosis um, for many might overlap in in terms of what it feels like, it might overlap with guided meditations, for example, right? You're using imagery, you're using suggestions. Um, and um, it's, uh, it's a little bit more symptom focused, right? Many of us have meditated, many of us have some exposure to mindfulness, for example. That is more contemplative in nature where we're exploring the present moment. Maybe mm -hmm. Uh, a little bit without a specific goal, right? We're just really being open to what's our present reality um, is throwing at us, right? Um, without judging. Hypnotherapy is a little bit more Western in its, in its approach. Here we're asking, how can we get the symptom better? What are some of the... Um, what are some of the images and suggestions that may help us when we're, when we're practicing imagining them that may help us cope with a specific symptom. So for example, um, you may uh, practice a self-hypnosis practice when you're um, imagining, imagining yourself over and over again. I'm using the word imagining, but it's a little bit different in hypnosis. It's when you're very relaxed, some of the um, uh, some of the filters that you may have fall away and you can really experience it as a sensory as a sensory experience, right? You can um, make yourself open the door of the freezer and put in your face, really experiencing the cold on your face, uh, noticing how refreshing that is, noticing how the cold may spread to your neck and your um, and your chest, right? So we can we can imagine that, and we can practice and train to call upon these images in order to bring us some relief. Wow. And so is this something we do ourselves or is this where I come into clinic with you and you hypnotize me? How does it work in practice? Yeah. 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 So I think that many people do need a little bit of directions and how to learn to do it themselves. But the goal is yeah. to do it yourself. Um, one of the famous um, uh, hypnotherapists of our, uh, of, uh, you know, th that are often quoted, um, uh, Erickson, he, he said, every hypnosis is self-hypnosis. Every kind of hypnosis is self-hypnosis. So I can't hypnotize you if you don't buy into it, right? And so, yeah. um, but of course, it maybe takes a bit of practice to do it independently. Yeah, yeah. but we practice this when for example, for hot flushes, we practice this when we don't have a hot flush, right? Correct. So, or do, yeah. and then what happens when I then feel like I've got hot flush coming on? Because yeah. I can't stand in the middle of my podcast recording or work meeting going, oh, I'm going to just put myself into hyp hypnosis. Like, how yeah. does it, how, where's the connection? Yeah. So in hypnosis, we're using often a couple of different images, right? For example, mm -hmm. the, um, the freezer door, but there mm -hmm. might also be a breeze that you're feeling, or you mm -hmm. might also imagine yourself having your feet in a bucket of ice water. Um, mm -hmm. So we're using a lot of different images. And sometimes when you practice them a lot, you might be able mm -hmm. to just call upon them. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, you're sitting in a meeting, you can imagine your feet are in a, a, in a bucket mm -hmm. of ice water, mm -hmm. right? If you've practiced mm -hmm. that, that might have an impact mm -hmm. on how you experience your temperature. Yeah, it's like anchoring. So in yoga, yeah. sometimes at the end of class, I get my yogis to put their thumbs inside of their hands. So mm -hmm. make little fists with your thumbs yeah. inside. And when we imagine ourselves in our loveliest holiday destination, walking across the beach barefooted and mm -hmm. under the palm trees and slurping a nice cocktail or whatever it might be that evokes a really lovely feeling, we anchor it in. And mm -hmm. sometimes when I walk and it's winter and I walk the dog and I put my hands in my pocket, I've now remembered to anchor back in. Yes. And it's just a moment of just 
just a moment of that bliss of that feeling at the end of a yoga practice when I'm blissed out and I'm imagining is, is it a bit like that so you can call that's upon... exactly like that you're actually using okay. an induction technique you're actually using an aspect of, of okay hypnosis. so I think that's yeah because it yeah sorry yeah um it, you know hypnotherapy is often um you know, sounds a little bit woo-woo to people. I think things like mindfulness are a lot more accepted. But in reality, a state of hypnosis is something we all experience in our day-to-day -day life, right? When we're absorbed in a show so that we're forgetting the things that are going on around us. Or um, if we're, um, I don't know, on a run and we're uh, sort of in this semi-trans state, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's a very similar state that we're learning to access deliberately. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is so interesting. I don't even know why we haven't spoken about hypnosis before, but you know that vision of putting my head, my face into the freezer and opening that freezer door, like <laughs> I can actually really quite feel it. Like I have a real yeah. sort of connection to that image. It's quite interesting, more so than maybe with my feet in mm -hmm. cold water, but it's very interesting. Everyone will have something else when they work Correct. for them. Everyone has yeah. a different hypnotic talent, right? For some people... Um, sounds might work well for some people sensations for some people movement uh, for some people uh, smells right so there everyone mm. has sort of another hypnotic talent mm. so hypnosis is one of those very high evidence-based complementary treatments it comes up very high you suggested in the studies or in... in in the treatment for vasomotor symptoms or hot flashes yes mm. um for mm. other model so for, for for this indication, there's excellent evidence and then there is good evidence for, mm -hmm. for pain management as well. Mm -hmm. And what other complementary treatments that you can integrate into someone's cancer survivorship are there that you like using in clinic? Yeah. So, for example, acupuncture, right? An experienced mm -hmm. acupuncturist that has worked with people having neuropathy, having musculoskeletal pain and stiffness, having mm -hmm. the joint pain that is often associated with aromatase inhibitors, right? The, the Often uh, women have joint pain that affects the small joints of their hands, for example, or other joints. Um, there's now several uh, large randomized controlled studies that indicate that acupuncture can be very helpful in specifically reducing that kind of pain. But there's also good evidence that acupuncture can be helpful for insomnia, especially with, when insomnia is associated or um, maybe pain is partially responsible for insomnia. Um, it, there's at least four randomized controlled studies of using acupuncture in breast cancer survivors for hot flashes. There's even one that compares acupuncture to gabapentin, which is one of the medications we're using sometimes to address hot flashes. And acupuncture actually turns out to be more effective than gabapentin mm -hmm. in that study. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so you know, mindfulness, mindfulness-based approaches have uh, a lot, a large body of evidence. Um, there's mm -hmm. recently been a Society for Integrative Med for Integrative Oncology guideline evaluating the, um, the the evidence behind mindfulness in cancer treatment and survivorship, and they really highlighted the excellent evidence um, mm -hmm. of uh, mindfulness for addressing anxiety and depression during and after mm -hmm. treatment. Yeah. And so with acupuncture, I'm just thinking of a friend. I've worked with her today mm -hmm. and I've given her one of those cooling pillows. We had sent one to us to the community to share. And I said, Rachel, why don't you try this? And she's like, I'm happy to try anything. 
she's about to start ac acupuncture. Um, but I also know that joint ache is a problem and sleep. So three real sort of symptoms that are quite stubborn and persisting. Could acupuncture, when you embark on a course of acupuncture, help with everything? Or do you need to go to specific sessions for a specific symptom? Often they can address a range of different symptoms. Um, okay. It probably depends on how the patient tolerates the treatment, how they respond to the treatment. Each acupuncturist will make that assessment based on your mm -hmm. response to the needling. But yes, um, that's the beauty of acupuncture. It's a highly personalized treatment and definitely they can um, work on points that are important for sleep, work on points that are mm -hmm. uh, more specific for um, the, the joint pain. Um, yeah, mm. so you, you, this is a constellation of symptom where I would recommend acupuncture. Mm. And do you have patients coming back to you saying, oh my gosh, it's made such a big difference and they feel their symptom burden has really eased? Yeah, definitely. Um, if I didn't have that, it would be very difficult to, <laughs> to, to do my job. Um, yeah, yeah, um, certainly, yeah. And, you know, I think that... Um, there's there's a, a small percentage of patients that say, um, you know, this made all my symptoms go away. My life changed completely. Um, there's a very small percentage of patients that say this didn't make any difference, and then we have to pivot. Um, and then there, the majority of patients will say, wow, this this really made a dent in my symptoms. This improved my symptoms, mm -hmm. and my quality of life is better. Mm. Because really, when you think of some patients that have such debilitating joint ache, for example, yeah. that they can hardly, you know, get out of bed in the morning and their quality of life is so impaired, you can't imagine it. You think it's only a bit of joint ache, but it does stop people in their tracks. And it, it often doesn't allow them to continue on some treatment that might actually have life prolonging and life saving effects. So whatever we can do to help people manage their symptoms is a no brainer to me. I just don't understand why it's not really part of oncologists sort of pathways e even more so. It doesn't really make any sense. I mean, I, you know, if we could get to a place where services like yours are integrated into most cancer services, we'd have so many better survival rates because people could stay on all of their treatments and, mm -hmm. you know, or many people more could manage them better for longer periods of time, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think that's one of the biggest um, challenges in this field to make it more accessible, more widely accessible. Yes. And actually, one of our missions is really to incorporate it into the standard of care, to generate the evidence that will allow it to be standard of care. Yeah, that would be amazing. What else is um, something that you like using with your patients? We touched on loads, I feel like um, even mindfulness, CBT, CBTI. Um, so interesting about hypnosis. Is there anything else that you use that you think, actually, I'd quite like to mention that? Well, I think that um, finding an exercise strategy, despite okay. all the a loss of, um, you know, fitness that might have occurred during treatment, loss of muscle mass that might have occurred during treatment, we have to find a sustainable strategy to address exercise, especially in light of the uh, body composition changes that we see um, not only during treatment, but during uh, menopause, right? We know that mm -hmm. uh, women that withdraw from estrogen have a harder time holding onto their muscle mass mm -hmm. and uh, an easier time accumulating visceral fat that has implications on long-term health. Um, and so it, it's very important to have a strategy that works 
with the symptoms, with the fatigue and with the joint pain that still allows people to mm-hmm. hold on to their muscle mass, to, to, to train um, uh, in, a, in a satisfying way. Um, and then, of course, we're, we always talk about the use of natural products as well. Um, many of my patients are very interested in that. And so we, we, we talk about that. We talk about the symptoms that may benefit from a natural product, um, talk about the prescription medication options, uh, the non-prescription medication options, the herbs. Mm. Um, so that is another yeah. big topic in my clinic as well. Yeah. What are people most interested in when you talk about natural products? Are they herbal medications or are they supplements? I mean, there, there's so many questions around yeah. supplements and um, what's a common question or a few sort of topics that come up. So I think one of the questions is, um, can I replace my tamoxifen with a with an herb? Is there an herb that can act um, as an estrogen uh, blocker uh, in some of the tissues effectively that can reduce my risk for recurrence. Um, and so that is that is a, an important conversation because I think there are many different herbs out there that have preliminary evidence of having similar effects. However, there is no data that shows that it actually reduces um, breast cancer recurrence, right? So um, my my answer to that is always, you know, we don't we don't have uh, evidence to to say that any of these herbs there are many out there um, can have an impact on on survival of recurrence risk um, and many of these herbs also have mixed effects they may have a little bit of estrogenic effects and on other estrogen receptors have maybe an estrogen blocking effect so the net effect mm-hmm. is not quite clear the dose is mm-hmm. often not quite clear. And most importantly, we don't have clinical studies showing that it has an impact on on outcomes. Mm. Yeah, and it's such a minefield for the patient. It's such it a minefield. It we is. read it, and on Doctor Google at three o'clock in the morning has us believe a certain something, and we're all set to try and do this. And then you wake up the next morning, and you just still don't know what to do next. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite confusing. Um. I feel we have unpacked so much. What I can't stop thinking about is we should really record some um, hypnosis meditations and yeah. and make them available for people to just, you know, have a starting point. Yeah. Or are there resources like hypnosis resources that there you could is. share with us? Yes, mm. there is. Um, uh, so first of all, if you go to the MSK website, um, to the integrative medicine section on the MSK website, there is a multimedia button that takes you to a whole library of recorded meditations that any of you can access. Great. Um, there is one meditation for hot flashes, the cooling body scan that I recorded. Great. Um, but there's also an app that is uh, very well made. It's actually made uh, with the leading researcher on hypnotherapy for hot flashes, Gary Elkins, Professor Elkins. Wow. And the app is called Evia, uh, E-V-I-A. Um, mm-hmm. And um, that has a program of walking you through um, walking you through, you know, how to learn self-hypnosis for hot flashes specifically. And uh, many patients like it. Wow, I love that. And so very at the beginning of the conversation, I said to you, what do we call 
the treatments that you prescribe, are they complementary treatments? And you said to me, actually, terminology is important. Can you touch on that? Because I feel like at the end of this conversation, many of us or many of the people listening at home might want to take aspects forward. How do we talk about what we've just summed up? What is it that we talked about? Yeah, so we like to call it integrative medicine, really highlighting mm -hmm. that it's meant to be integrated and uh, it's, it's meant to complement your treatment, uh, your gold standard treatment, right? Um, as opposed to alternative therapies, right? Where uh, sometimes they get marketed as something to be used instead. And alternative therapies, that, that's where we have to watch out for, uh, you know, what is the evidence? What is the supportive evidence, the clinical evidence, or just preclinical pre evidence? Often these are also costly. Sometimes there's not good safety data. So here we really like to discern that and say integrative medicine is meant, is, is meant to be evidence supported, um, is uh, meant to be um, really safety minded um, and to complement your treatment not to be used instead. And that's how I, how I would discern that. But, uh, you know, in terms of terminology, you might find holistic, complementary, mm. um, mm. right? You, you'll find a lot of different terms used. Mm. I like integrated. Holistic sometimes sounds a bit like woo-woo, right? So if I say to people, I've put together holistic, um, you know, management package for menopause, people don't always know, or even doctors don't really know what I mean by that. I quite like your terminology. You've had great words. Um, I feel like I need to try out what it feels like. It's very odd, Shelley, but I feel like I want to try out what it feels like to put my head in the fridge now, in the freezer, and I'm going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just anchor it in and just feel a little bit of that cold soothe. Yeah. I hope everyone at home is going to try. Go and open, if you have a freezer at home, open that freezer and stick your head in. <laughs> Yeah. Anchor yeah. it in and see how it feels. Exactly. Practice um, that sensation. It's it you, you might be surprised how easy it is to recall it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for today's conversation. I've learned so much about words, but also about your treatments. Um you described them really beautifully. And thank you for giving us hope that they actually work because I know everything you talk about is highly evidence-based. Um and so yeah, thank you for spreading a bit of that hope. It was such a pleasure. And um, yeah, I, um, I'm looking forward to your content every time you have a new podcast. And so, yeah, it was such a pleasure being part of it. Oh, isn't Shelley amazing? In an ideal world, and I hope one day soon, or maybe in our next generation, cancer services and departments are all going to include um, an approach that Shelley and the guys at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Center in New York City apply for all of their patients and cancer survivors. And that is to integrate all of these other modalities where we have plenty of evidence base behind it into someone's treatment and survivorship plan. Um, but until we all have access to all of these great services, go into the link of the show notes, follow the link for hypnosis and meditation. Um, it's a great free resource for all of us to use. What a treat. I love sharing really amazing practical tips like that with all of you. Um, but now to story time. So in the years after my cancer diagnosis, I was dabbling with healthy eating, as you know, but when my diet was at the absolute best, my mental health was still at an all-time low. Um, it was also at the time that my mother-in-law ushered me to my first yoga class. And although I was very worried that my wig would slip off my head, 
I didn't want to take my socks off because I had lost all of my toenails. And so it was quite a slippery affair, especially in Downward Dog, as you can imagine. But I kept going back because there was something in that yoga practice that made me feel a bit more grounded and just a little bit more centered into the present moment. I worried a tiny bit less about my cancer coming back and getting me and me not seeing the children perhaps even start, you know, their first day at school. And I dwelled a little bit less on all of the traumatic experiences that happened to me in the past. For example, I had a port fitted for my chemotherapy, but that ruptured my lungs. And so I ended up in intensive care for over two weeks. And so there were a lot of things when I prepared myself for cancer treatment and chemotherapy and what that might mean for you, that kind of like didn't go to plan. And it floored me. I didn't have a reserve to sort of deal with all of those situations. And so I think a lot of my post-treatment life was very much governed still by a lot of the trauma. I'm sure I carried some post-traumatic stress. I always thought I'm just anxious. Today, I understand that I was depressed for years. And as part of that depression became a real sort of health anxiety. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that. I just always thought everything in my body, that's it. My cancer is back. And I just couldn't trust my body and had all of these thoughts in my head at the same time as being really busy. Being busy just didn't do it for me. I was very busy raising three young children, taking them to school. They were on their scooters. And of course, I was doing everything. All my senses were alert to keeping them alive. But still, in the back of my head, I was worried that maybe the little niggle in my hip was cancer in my bones and that would be it for me. And so at the time where I did my yoga, I kind of became a little bit more introduced to mindfulness and to apps. And I just Googled things on YouTube. And there was a YouTube video and meditation that came up and it was a healing meditation. Then I didn't know it was by hypnotherapists. They were all a bit the same to me. Um, it was a guy and I thought, well, that sounds quite nice. And the meditation brought you into a room and there was white light and I just felt I could heal whilst I was listening to this meditation. And I think I told the story on the podcast before. My husband always said, Danny, it's quite funny because there was a time where it was always us three going to bed. It was you and Mark and me. And Mark is the guy, the hypnotherapist from the app. And um, every night I would plug myself into the app and I would listen to the same hypnosis meditation until a couple of years on. And so that was a long time. I went back to the same strategy and the same tool. I thought I need to do something else. I just want to improve how I'm feeling. And so I seeked him out. I live in I live on the outskirts of London and he is a practitioner in London. And so I seeked hypnosis sessions out with the guide I've been listening to. And it was quite a surreal experience. I walked into a small office just off the Strand at Charing Cross in London, quite a small sort of pokey office. But I had a connection to him quite quickly because I'd listened to his voice for so long and so many, many times. And he hypnotized me and we had three sessions. And yeah, I'm not going to go into all of the details. I'm very much aware still. I, I walked out of the second appointment. And I thought, yeah, I can remember everything. I don't even know if that was real hypnosis or what it was. And I wanted to walk back to Waterloo where I was going to get my train. And I thought, I'm going to remember, I need to remember everything to tell my husband and my mum. I wanted to share what had happened and the things that came up for me in this hypnosis session. And as I was walking across Waterloo Bridge, 
I just felt lighter. I kept looking to the left and to the right of me. I saw the river and the buildings and I just felt so light. I had no intention of ever telling anyone what had happened in that session because I suddenly felt life was lighter and easier. I had a spring in my step and I felt as if I had carried heavy blankets on my shoulders and suddenly they weren't there. I can't describe the feeling, but it was really, really helpful. And as I'm telling you this, I'm thinking to myself, why didn't I go back to this strategy that's clearly worked for me in the following years where perhaps my anxiety then reared its head again? So for a long time, I felt much better through these three hypnosis sessions. And then life happens, right? And you become busy and you change and symptoms come and go. And up until this point, I've never called upon this one particular strategy. And that's interesting, isn't it? And it's actually, I'm here reflecting on myself. And I wonder if you've also had experiences like that, where you've embarked on something that's helped maybe acupuncture. It's helped you, maybe not gotten rid of all of your symptoms, but it's been beneficial. And then you haven't gone back because maybe life got busy or you were only, you know, offered six sessions and then you didn't find another provider. Whatever it is, I think that is a real interesting sort of point for me right now to think, what have I done in the past? What has worked for me? And do I want to embark on that again? And speaking to Shelley was a reminder for me to draw upon this modality that's really helped me in the past. I can still see myself walking across Waterloo Bridge and feeling like a different version of myself. And I can't explain it to you in any other words, but this is my own personal experience. Um, I hope, I don't know, I don't know why I'm telling you all of these stories, but I just want to share what's possible beyond medication and beyond feeling there is nothing else I can do for myself. And with that, I love you and leave you. And I'll see you and speak to you on the show next week. <music>